If you have a Bible with you, can you turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1 on Sunday nights here at Windsor? We're working our way through one of Paul's prison letters, his letter to the Colossians. And last week, James Greenwood, one of the members here, took us along with Pilgrim uh, from Pilgrim's Progress through chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, and then chapter 2, 6 to 15. So that means we missed a bit, or should I say that we skipped a bit, and therefore this evening we're going to return to the end of chapter 1, beginning in chapter 2. And by the way, it wasn't that James missed it or avoided it on purpose. It just seemed appropriate to break it up this way. So shall we stand together for the public reading of God's Word? Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking In regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Please take your seats. Let me just ask you a question. It's it's a rather strange question, but who enjoys suffering? And I assume uh, no one, and therefore Paul's opening comment in verse 24 is intriguing, but a little disturbing because he says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. You see, Paul knew the reality of suffering for his faith. After all, he was writing this letter from the confines of a prison cell. He was consistently, constantly being beaten. We know that he was lashed at least five times, stoned on one occasion, uh, beaten with rods on three other occasions, and he was also battered by the natural elements. We also know that he was shipwrecked three times. But as far as Paul was concerned, that all came with the territory. For Paul, suffering was both a mark of authentic Christian ministry, but also of authentic Christian experience. And the reason that he rejoiced in it, which if you think about it seems a bit bizarre, to rejoice in suffering. But if you look at the second half of verse 24, it says that he felt he was participating in the sufferings of Christ. And later on in the New Testament, Peter also picks this up when he writes, Rejoice! that you participate in Christ's sufferings. And as far as these heroes of the Christian faith were concerned, suffering was to be anticipated. And just as Jesus Christ had suffered, so his disciples should expect it. And so whenever Jesus had said things like that, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross. These guys seem to take that at face value. 
And therefore they knew that whenever they made that decision to follow Jesus, that life was going to be different. But not only was it going to be different, it was going to be difficult. And it was also going to get uncomfortable. Those early Christians were under no illusion about the challenges involved in being a Christ follower. They knew that sharing the gospel and being church would inevitably lead to suffering. But getting the good news of Jesus out there, encouraging the churches to hang in there, stay true to their calling and follow in their master's footsteps, was so important to the likes of Paul that if it meant suffering, so be it. And there's almost a sense in which Paul's bring it on. And for us reading that and for us engaging with that, that seems rather strange. And as I, as I read words like that as I reflect on them, it raises all kinds of issues for me and questions, questions that I'd rather avoid. But one key question that forces me to ask is this. Would I, would we be prepared to suffer for what we believe? Suffer for what we felt was important? Let me give you a couple of interesting stories just about suffering and persecution. By AD 100, but 65 years after Jesus returned to be with his father, it's estimated there were approximately 25,000 Christians. By AD 310, the number had increased to 20 million. Now that is phenomenal growth by any standards. But during those 200 years, Christianity was an illegal religion. And at best, Christians were tolerated, but generally they were severely persecuted. It seems that in the context of suffering, the church grew. But that was 1,800 years ago, and Christianity was also new. But before we write that off as a freak of history, let's jump forward to the story of the underground church in China during the last century, when Chairman Mao took power and initiated the organized purge of religion from society. The church in China was estimated to number about 2 million adherents. And as part of a systematic persecution, Mao banished all foreign missionaries and ministers. He nationalized all church property, killed all senior leaders, and he either killed or imprisoned all second and third level church leaders. He banned all public meetings of Christians with the threat of death or torture. And then he proceeded to perpetuate one of the cruelest persecutions of Christians on historical record. And the explicit aim of the cultural revolution was to obliterate Christianity and all religions, for that matter, from China. And at the end of the reign of Mao and his system in the late 70s, foreign missionaries and church officials were allowed back into the country, albeit under strict supervision. And they expected to find a church that was decimated and disciples who were weak and battered. But what they actually discovered was that Christianity had flourished beyond all imagination. It is estimated that there were something like 60 million Christians in China at this time. And that's a conservative estimate. Again, in the context of suffering, the church grows. And I suppose I, as I reflect on those sort of stories, I wonder if the stakes were higher for us, that if our lives were under threat, would I still stand? I don't think physical persecution for being a Christian in Northern Ireland is imminent. I really don't. But I do think that saying Jesus is the only way to God, 
or that speaking truth into a culture that no longer believes in capital T, truth. Or calling people to repent of sin whenever we live in a society which increasingly no longer accepts there is such a thing as right and wrong. That that is going to lead to increased ridicule. Maybe not physical suffering. But we are going to be branded intolerant and bigoted. The church does now exist on the margins of society in 2009. Very seldom now will anybody ever turn to the church to hear what it's got to say on anything. That was the case at one stage in time. Not anymore. We're right back out on the margins. Nobody is really that interested in what the church has to say about anything. And to be a Bible-believing Christian today is becoming more and more difficult. Speaking about Jesus, sharing his values is increasingly treated with scorn and contempt and therefore hassle, if not suffering, is is highly likely. And that takes me back to the question I asked a moment ago. Is Jesus so important to me? And is sharing the message of Jesus with others so important to me that I am prepared to become uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel? Remembering that in the context of suffering comes growth. Paul was prepared to suffer. In fact, he embraced it. He rejoiced in his sufferings because he realized that if that meant the church grew and others discovered more about Jesus, then for him that was a price worth paying. The Colossian Christians benefited from Paul's willingness to suffer. And in some ways... In many ways, so have we. And as Christians here this evening, we are indebted to the likes of people like Paul who were prepared to suffer so that we could discover more about the transforming message of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, you know, we've got to embrace hassle. Not just for the sake of the gospel, but actually for the sake of others. Because if we don't share the message of Jesus if we don't believe it's so important to get it out there, then who is going to share it with our families and our friends and with our communities? We can learn from Paul's willingness to suffer. But secondly, take a look at verse 25, because we here discover about Paul's willingness to serve, because he says, I have become, it's that's the church's Servant, And we know that Paul served churches all around his locality. And the importance of serving the body of Christ, serving one another, cannot be overemphasized. The need for us to possess a servant heart. And on Sunday mornings we're going through this series looking at the condition of our hearts. And we are going to spend a morning in, looking in detail at what it means to have servant hearts. But as I thought about this uh, during the week, I quickly realized that even on a day like today... So many people have served this church. There were people in creche this morning as we met in here. There were people who went out to teach our kids in junior church. There were those who were on the PA this morning. There were, there were those who were on the PA this evening. There was a deacon on duty. There was an elder on duty. There were many musicians. If you're here this morning, a whole band of them, musicians here tonight. 
And then we think about the week that lies ahead. There are so many people who are going to serve us as a church. People who are going to host and lead fellowship groups. People who are going to run iSports. People who are going to do so many different things. And that's because here within a church like this, there is a servant heart. There is a desire to serve one another, to serve the body of Christ. And that's something I think we should thank God for. We really should thank God. God for because serving one another is a key aspect of what we're called to do. It's all about living beyond ourselves. It's all about saying it's not just about me, it's about you. And I want to know how can I serve you? That was the mindset of Paul. Paul had become the church's servant. And so I, as relatively new here, want to say thank you to so many of you who choose week by week to serve this body of Christ in this place. Often on scene. It's one thing to stand up here and do what I do here. But it's a completely different thing to be in next door with a bunch of crying kids for an hour. And I want to say thank you to people who do that type of servant ministry. You know, Jesus Jesus radically served his Christian friends on one occasion by washing their feet. And then he said those words that need to be etched onto our minds. He said, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And we know that as Matthew reminds us, that Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And his life was a supreme example to us and to many people. You know, Paul saw himself as a servant of the church, a servant of the body of Christ. And here in Colossians 1, we discover that many others were living life that way. Windsor Baptist, my hope is that we would never lose sight of that value. And that we would be characterized as a church with servant hearts. But back to the text. Look at what Paul was committed to. Verse 25. To present the word of God in its fullness. Or as another translation puts it, to make the word of God Fully known, And I know that that is one of the key priorities of this church. It's one of our primary tasks to make the word of God fully known. We are here as a church committed to teaching the Bible. And that is so important because this has got to ter- determine what we believe. Not only what we believe is here in this morning. This has got to determine how we live. This has got to inform the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis. The decisions we make must be filtered through this lens. And for Paul it was all about making the word of God fully known. Probably one of my my favorite quotes uh, and also one of the most unsettling quotes about the Bible comes from Gandhi of all people. When he said this, and I, I will use this quote a number of times, Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but they treat it as though it was nothing more than a piece of literature. Do you know, we must never, ever get to this place where we treat this as just another piece of literature. This is the word of God. It is alive. It is active. It is sharper than a surgeon's scalpel. Let's be a church that reflects Paul's desire to make the word of God fully known. But Paul then highlights one of the mysteries of the gospel. And I love that whole, that whole idea, the mystery of the gospel. But here's one of them. Christ in verse 27, which was a staggering thing to say. 
And it remains an amazing reality for all Christians. Because remember, this declaration that Christ is in you comes immediately after that epic hymn about the cosmic Christ that we joined the Colossian church in singing a couple of weeks ago. Colossians 1, 15-20 says these facts about the cosmic Christ. And I'm just reminding those who were here two weeks ago. He is the image of the invisible God. An exact representation who makes the invisible visible. We read he is the firstborn. He was the pre-existent honoured son of the father. He was the agent of creation. All that we see around us was made through him. He is the goal of creation. All that was made was made for him. And he is the sustainer of creation. It's all held together by him. Now I'm just repeating words from the first or from verses 15 to 20. He is the head of the new creation. He is the source and the authority of the church. He is the beginning of the new creation. Without him, none of us would be here. And he is, as we said at the beginning, the firstborn of this new creation. He's our hope of resurrection. In other words, what Paul was saying and what we said that night was that Christ is supreme. But here is the shocking thing. Christ is in you. And I don't know how, how you process that, how you grasp that. But that reality, that truth, that mystery of the gospel as Paul calls it, should expand our minds, stir our emotions, impact our lives, and alter our perspective on virtually everything. Christ is in you. But it doesn't end there, because Christ in you is declared to be the hope of glory. Do you know, life without hope is so debilitating. And sadly, many people in our world today lack any sense of hope. Ernest Hemingway is reported to have said these rather hopeless words on one occasion that probably captures the mindset of a generation. Life is just a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. There is no remedy for anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants on a burning log. Do you know, life, from that perspective, life without hope is deeply distressing. But death without hope is frightening. And that's why, as Christians, the mysterious reality of Christ in us, the risen Christ living in us, Christ, as we said a moment ago, is our hope of resurrection. Because of all of that, we as Christians can live with hope but we can also face death with hope Christ in you is the hope of glory life is frustrating at times death is a painful certainty but hope in the midst of it all is possible because of Christ and that's the message we need to get out there that Christ is in us and is the hope of glory in a world characterized by so much hopelessness. Thank God there is more to life than meets the eye. And then back to the text. Paul then spells out exactly what he believes his task to be. And it's in verse 28. Because he says, this is my task. It's so that we may present 
everyone fully mature in Christ. And that has got to be our task. That also must be a key priority for us as a church. To do all we can to help people grow. That's why, one of the key reasons we're here. To help people mature in Christ. But how do we do that? Well, verse 20, it says three ways. We proclaim Jesus, we admonish everyone, we teach everyone. Simple, really. Do you know, it's never about us. It must never be about any of us. It's always about Jesus. It's never Jesus plus, as we've been thinking about during this series. It's Jesus only. We must be a Christ-centered community. We must proclaim Jesus, share Jesus, be Jesus. And an admonish here means to make people aware of their need of Jesus. That's what admonish means in this context. And to teach everyone stresses the importance of instructing each other as we proclaim the word of God. Proclaim, admonish, teach. And then Paul actually shares his commitment to this task. And this must be our commitment as well. Look at verse 29. To this end... I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul, in other words, just threw himself into this total commitment. His willingness to suffer, his determination to serve the body, his desire to share God's word, and his delight to help people grow in the faith motivated his every waking moment. And in many ways, I want to suggest that that should motivate our every waking moment. Have we got a willingness to suffer? A determination to serve one another. A desire to get God's word out there. To make it fully known. And a delight to help each other grow. But notice where the strength of the task came from. He depended, it says, on Christ and his power at work in him. You know, to make God's word known, to serve each other, to disciple one another is virtually impossible in our own strength. We cannot do it. We need to draw from the internal supernatural power that is available to us. You know, trying to do church, be church, run church or build church on ourselves is not clever. We will end up distracted, disillusioned, burnt out and frustrated. We have got to strenuously go at this, but in the strength that Christ gives us. Not in our own strength. Not because of something we are, but because of everything he is. Very quickly, I'm not going to do the whole first five verses of chapter 2. But I just want to highlight one verse. Verse 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now let me say, I'm going to explain that rather strange image in a moment. Do you know there are two things that will wreck any church? And the two things are discouragement and disunity. And Windsor Baptist, like any other church, will always be at risk from both. And it is so easy to get discouraged as church. And particularly in a church, you know, people will disappoint you. Leaders will let you down. Friends will betray your trust. Plans will not always work out. Programs will struggle. Your expectations will not be met. And whenever you begin to lose heart, or whenever tension and division creep in, then alarm bells need to ring, and they need to ring loudly in a local church fellowship. And that's why Paul says, listen, I don't want you to lose heart. I want you to be united in love. And this phrase, united in love, actually suggests being welded together into a genuine unity. 
And what a goal and a prayer for any church, for this church. Being church in the first century was a challenge. Being church in the 21st century is a challenge. But Paul's prayer is timeless and it's here I want to end. And I want to end by inviting you to do something. And I am so aware of the time, so I'm going to suggest we maybe just do this and then I'll pray. I hope that's okay, musicians, but I just want to honour people's time. But I would like you to stand with me for a moment just as we finish and let me explain what I would like us to do. Please stand. What I would love you to do is just in the quietness, I would love you to pray these words for us as a church. And if you're here visiting tonight, and I know there are people here visiting from another church, then pray this for your fellowship. Please, God, protect us from discouragement and weld us together in unity. But there is a personal challenge and dimension to this because, you know, sometimes I can be discouraging to you and sometimes I can lack love for you and therefore in the silence let's each of us allow God to search our hearts because, you know, sometimes we are the answers to our prayers. And so my encouragement to you is if in the quietness you realise, you know, I maybe did say something discouraging to someone. I maybe do lack love for that brother, that sister. Then take these moments to put that right. It's in the silence. Pray this for us as a church. And so, Father, as we come to the end of this service, I pray that you'd give us a willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. A determination to serve one another, a desire to share your word. And a real commitment to help one another grow in the faith. And God, please do protect us from getting discouraged. And unite us together in love. And we pray all of this in and through the name of Jesus, who is supreme. Amen.